really just another way of talking about the words that Jesus said. Many of you have Bibles like mine, where every time there's a quote from Jesus, it's listed in red ink so that it jumps out at us, and we can see it, and we can highlight it or underline it, or we can just leave it as it is, because it's already in red letters, and, and we get a sense for the actual words that Jesus said. And the gospel stories are filled with red ink, because the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of Jesus. They're eyewitnesses, and, and, and so they make sure that, that they write down these stories and they include the words that Jesus said. And these writers were so moved by the life of Jesus that they wrote down accounts of, of what happened. And I think probably you would do the same thing if you interacted with someone who claimed that they were God, and then they went around and they healed people and they did miracles and they raised people from the dead and they said outlandish things and then they got killed and then they rose up from the dead. I wonder sometimes, well, were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were these gifted writers? Were these writers to begin with? Or were they just so amazed at what happened in this guy's life they thought, we got to write this down. I mean, I think, I'm not much of a writer, but I think if I interacted with someone like Jesus, I would have found a way to write it down. And so that, that's where we get these, these gospel accounts from these four men And we have the words of Jesus in red. But most of Jesus' words aren't from a really long sermon. It's not just word after word after word. We certainly have the Sermon on the Mount, which is a very long sermon that Jesus provides a lot of teaching. But a lot of the red letters that we get are from his interactions with people. He talks with people. They ask him a question, and then Jesus will respond. Or Jesus will tell a short parable or a story. And and so we have a whole bunch of examples of the words of Jesus in in sort of these interpersonal relationships with people. And who wouldn't want to ask Jesus a question? I mean, if you were interacting with Jesus, if you were there when he was walking on earth, wouldn't you want to ask him a question too? Because, I mean, this was the Son of God. This was the ultimate authority figure on life. And I've got lots of questions. I've got questions every single day. I ask you lots of my questions, actually. I've got questions about pretty much anything. And and when I have a question, what I try to do is I try to find the best person that I know about that topic, and I ask them. I find my authority person, and then I ask them my question. And so when I've got a fishing question, I usually ask Jonathan Woodbury. Or I ask my father-in-law, because both these guys are great fishermen. They know exactly what to do when you get out on the water. Whenever I have any sort of question that has to do with plants, growing, seed, fertilizing, transplant, I ask my friend Andrew Birkinshaw. That, that's the guy that I go to. He knows everything about plants. He can grow anything. If I have a hair question, I ask Rihanna because Rihanna knows everything there is about hair. And so it's great. She's my expert when it comes to hair. If I have an injury question, something's wrong with my body, something hurts, I call my mother-in-law. It's great. Full disclosure, I tell her what's going on and what my problem is, and she's a nurse, and she helps me out. If I have anything broken in my house or anything that I think could probably work better, I ask Aaron Franson. That guy hears me about just about anything, and I think it's come to the point now when he sees my number pop up on caller ID, he just you know, doesn't answer the phone anymore because he knows he's, he's got a project on his hands. If I have a cleaning question, I ask my mom. On my mom's messiest day in the house, it's cleaner than anyone else's house I've ever met. That woman can clean anything. Now, you might have noticed I haven't said anything about Pastor Brad being my authority source when it comes to the Bible. (laughs) Now, my theory is is that I try not to hassle one person for too many things. And so for Brad, he's my expert on wine. So I kind of isolate that. That's Pastor Brad's category. You know, Bible questions, they, they go somewhere else. When I've got an investment question, I talk to my financial planner. 
If I've got a computer question, I talk to Eric or to Jared. If I've got a fashion question, I don't ask a man. I ask someone else. I ask a woman for that. If I've got a hockey question, I don't ask anyone in my family. And when I've got a question that's so vague and so insignificant, I don't even know how to phrase it. I just type words into Google, and I find the answer to something. And I ask a lot of questions. Some of you probably think I ask too many questions. But we all have questions. Some of us voice the questions. Some of, them keep, some of us keep it inside. Some of us wait years and years and years to ask questions. We just have to have the right person or the right time or the right occasion to ask questions. But we ask questions. And we ask questions that are much more important than the questions that I just suggested. Much more important than the topics of hair and, and repairs and cleaning and all those sorts of things. We've got questions like, what does God want me to do in this situation? We've got questions like, can I make better choices in my life? We've got questions like, am I making the most out of my life? And what's going to happen when I die? The amazing thing about the Bible is that Jesus talks about life's most important questions. It's right here in red letters for us to read and for us to think about. The temptation is to read the words of Jesus and to wonder if Jesus really meant what he said. Did Jesus really mean what he said when he talked about this topic and that topic? And that's really what our series has been all about. And the question that we're going to ask today, which might be one of the most important questions we could ask, is what do we have to do to get eternal life? What needs to be done to get eternal life. Now, this question is not unusual. I think most people have asked this question at some point. How do I get to heaven? They might rephrase it in a little bit. How good do I have to be to to get into that place that I want to go to? But the, the response that Jesus gives to the question is incredibly surprising. And the scene that this, that this question comes out of has become one of the most well-known stories in all the Bible. Now, the story's older than we can imagine, but the words of Jesus are just as relevant. And the story comes from the book of Matthew, the first gospel story. And if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew. This story is, is so well-known and so popular that we have three versions of it. Luke and Mark, they also write about this same occasion. And their stories are slightly different. There's a a kind of small little nuances, which is what you would expect when you have three people who interact with one person. They have the same thing happen, and and they kind of pull out different, different things, different perspectives from that story. And so we have multiple eyewitness accounts of what's going on. But for today's message, we're going to focus on how Matthew tells the story, and he tells it in chapter 19. Now, at this point in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is, is teaching. At the beginning of, of uh, chapter 19, Matthew tells us that Jesus has been interacting with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and he's been giving them instruction on a variety of different topics, and he's teaching people in the region of Judea. And then after that, uh, some children come up to Jesus, and he starts interacting with children and spending time with them, and the disciples feel like this is a great waste of Jesus' time, so Jesus kind of reminds them, hey, let the kids come to me. This is something that I love to do. This is something that's important. And then after that scene in verse 15, we see that Jesus goes on. So Jesus is on the move at the beginning of this story. And we get the idea that Jesus is, is walking towards sword, some sort of destination. He's got an idea of where he wants to go. He has his disciples with him. And presumably, he has other people around him because Jesus attracts the masses. 
And so Jesus is on his way. He's walking somewhere. He's got his buddies around him. There's people around. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, a man approaches him and asks a question. Now, Matthew tells us that this man finds Jesus so he can ask, us a, ask him a question. In Mark's version, he's even more descriptive. He says the man runs up in front of Jesus and actually falls down to his knees and asks him this question. And it's this big question we were just talking about. He asks him, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So this man runs up in front of Jesus, he falls down in front of him, and he says, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what is he talking about? What is eternal life in this passage? Because for as much as eternal life or everlasting life or life after death is talked about, it it can have a whole bunch of, of different definitions. We can talk about it a lot, and we don't even know what we're really meaning when we talk about eternal life. What's interesting is that later on in this story, as we're about to see, Jesus kind of rephrases his question, and Jesus talks about life, and then he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And we can't really know. We can just speculate what this man thought when he was referring to eternal life. But that's his question. What do I have to do to get eternal life? But the more important part of this question is not the noun. It's not eternal life. It's the verb in this question. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? So he's looking for an action. He's looking for Jesus to tell him, this is what you need to do. This is the action you need to take in order to get what you want. And Jesus gives him something to do. Verse 17, the next verse in our story. Jesus replies, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now, Jesus relates life, this question that that the man asked about, eternal life, he relates life to obedience. And he says, if if you want life, if you want to experience the goodness of life, then do what God says. Obey God. And we get a sense from from Jesus' response that this man was probably Jewish. He probably knew the Hebrew scriptures. He knew the law. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if you know the law, then just follow it. Do what God says, and you're going to experience life life. But the man apparently wants better clarity than this. So he says in verse 18, which ones? Which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is is quoting some of the, the Ten Commandments there. And the young man says, all these I have kept. What do I still lack. This man is persistent. There's a number of other red letter stories where Jesus responds to just one question. And this man now has taken a risk. He's run up in front of Jesus. He's planted himself down there at his feet. He hasn't asked just one question. Now he's asked his third question. And he wants to know an answer to this question of what he needs to do. And now he's making it very clear that he senses he's missing something. What do I lack? What do I need to do in order to get eternal life? And so Jesus gives them something to do. Verse 21, Jesus says, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, 
because he had great wealth. How many of you wonder if the man thought to himself, I should have asked a different question. It's not the response I was looking for. He asked for something to do. He asked for something to do, and Jesus gives him something to do, doesn't he? The man confessed that he's incomplete. What do I still lack? I'm missing something. And so in Jesus' reply, he says, if you want to be complete, he uses the word perfect, but that word perfect also means completion, to be mature, to be whole. So Jesus says, if you want to find out what's missing, if you want to be complete, if you want to be perfect, then sell your stuff. If you want to be faithful, sell your stuff and give it to the poor. And that will result in him having treasure in heaven. Jesus says, exchange your earthly treasure and you'll receive heavenly treasure. And then come, follow me. And after listening to Jesus, the man walks away with noticeable sadness. In fact, Matthew tells us he went away sad because he had great wealth. The wealth provided him with this sadness, so to speak, because he recognizes that he can't have both. He has to make a choice, either keep his wealth or be obedient to Jesus and follow him. And we get a sense almost with this sadness that it almost seems like he can't make the choice. Like these possessions have such a grip on his life that all he's left to do is, is walk away with sorrow. And he's unable to do what Jesus tells him to do. So I was looking at this passage over the last couple of weeks. I thought of a question that I'd never thought about before when I looked at this story. What if a man had, had obeyed Jesus? Have you ever thought about what would happen if the man did exactly what Jesus said? And he said, okay, Jesus. And he went home and he sold all of his possessions and he gave them to the poor. And then he went back to Jesus and told him what he had done. Have you ever thought about that? Typically, I think, oh, man, the guy didn't do what Jesus says without, of course, thinking, well, would you have done the same thing? But what if he had done it? What if he had sold everything he had and given it to the poor? What would have happened? I'm a logical thinker. So when I look at the text and Jesus says, you want eternal life? You're looking for something to do? Okay, do this. I think to myself, well, if the man would have done that, then he would have gotten eternal life, right? But would he have really gotten that? I realize it's not always the wisest thing to do to speculate when you're looking for a teaching point in Scripture, but sometimes it can be very helpful to use your imagination and envision what we know of Jesus and how he would have responded. And I'm convinced that if this man had done exactly what Jesus said, if he had sold everything he had, if he said, this is what I have to do to get eternal life, and if he would have gone back to Jesus and said, I did it, I sold everything I had, I gave it to the poor, I'm convinced that Jesus would have given him something else to do. And if that man decided to follow suit and to do that second task, I think Jesus would have given him a third thing and then a fourth thing. And I think he would have kept on giving him stuff to do until the man reached the point, finally reached the point of falling on his knees and saying, I can't do it anymore. I'm incapable of doing stuff. I'm a sinner, I'm not worthy. I can't earn my way to eternal life. That story would have ended much differently, wouldn't have. Because instead of the man trying to do something to earn life, 
he would have had to have asked Jesus to save his life. And these are two very different scenarios. This man's story reminds us that no one enters the kingdom of heaven. No one gets to the point of living out this eternal life that Jesus promises by anything else other than the grace of God. There's nothing you can do. The man asked what he could do, and I think Jesus is showing him that you really can't do anything. There's nothing you or I can do to earn salvation. By its very definition, grace is undeserved. It cannot be earned. There's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. You and I have the same chance of gaining eternal life as the rich man did. It's the same chance that Mother Teresa had. It's the same chance that Simon Peter had. It's the same chance that Pope Francis has. On our own, we have no hope. There's nothing we can do to earn it. If you're visiting our church today and you think to yourself that you're surrounded by a whole bunch of good people, you couldn't be more mistaken. You're surrounded by a whole bunch of sinful people. You're surrounded by a whole bunch of people who've probably done far worse things than you have. But many of us are now forgiven people because we've come to the point of recognizing that we can't do it on our own. There were broken people who need to be rescued. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. That's why we love Jesus so much. Because he's changed our lives. Because he's filled the missing void that this man talks about. And that's why there's no shortage of words to talk about the grace of God. That's why there's classic hymns and contemporary songs that talk about how unbelievable the grace of God is. It's indescribable. It's unobtainable. It's marvelous. It's magnificent. It's too wonderful for words. And there's no need that can be done to earn it. But instead, the young man in this story heard bad news instead of good news. He heard the bad news that he had to get rid of his stuff. And so he went away sad. Now, there's much more to this story. The grace of God seems to appear in pretty much every story of Jesus. But this story gets even more personal because it doesn't end there. Matthew tells us that the man walks away sad. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and he starts talking. He starts describing what is going on with this young man's heart. And he makes it so relevant for each and every one of us. And it creates another one of those red letter moments that can haunt us, that can trouble us, but it can also have the ability to transform us. In verse 23, Jesus says to his disciples, Truly I say to you, and whenever Jesus says truly, it's, it's, it's an indication that we need to listen up because he's really going to teach us something great here. He says, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us that there's a tremendous roadblock on this path that leads to the kingdom of heaven. There's a a great divide. And the name of that roadblock is wealth. The reason the man walks away from Jesus is because he had great wealth. It was an obstacle in his life. And so Jesus points to the man's wealth because he points to every one of our obstacles. Everything that keeps us from being obedient and loyal to him. So that we can put that out of our lives. The young man's roadblock is not unique. It's the same roadblock that sits on each one of our paths. It can steal away our devotion, and it can distract us from obeying God. 
And some of you know exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. You know exactly what it means to have a heart that feels divided. Wanting to be obedient to God and yet at the same time being distracted by something else. In this case, wealth. There's an earlier story in in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is saying, you can't have two masters. You'll be loyal to one and not the other or vice versa. So you can't serve both God and money. You have to choose. And that's exactly the, the situation that he presented the rich young man in this story. It's not possible to trust both gods in your life. Your heart is really only capable of serving one. If you know what Jesus is talking about, if you've experienced this in your life, then in some cases you're one step further ahead than the disciples were in this story because this amazed them. And the reason why this was so difficult for them to grasp is is because based on the Jewish thought of that time, based on their tradition, wealth or riches was a sign of, of God's blessing. It was God pouring out his favor to people. So when they see a a rich man come and ask what he needs to do, and he's been faithful to the law, they would have thought, well, this man already has eternal life. He's living this life. There can't be anything missing in his life. And that's why Jesus repeats his message again, but this time he uses a word picture to describe it. He repeats his message, and he says, It's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think I've ever seen a camel. I know I've never been to the Middle East to see a camel. Maybe I saw one at a zoo. I don't remember. But I hear that they're big. They're big, large animals, right? And so Jesus contrasts the biggest known animal in Palestine. And I don't know what that would be for us, what sort of I guess it would be the Sasquatch, right? That'd be the most realistic one that we would be able to compare it with. But, I mean, whether we're looking at a moose or a grizzly bear or whatever, the the greatest object, and he compares it to the smallest object, the eye of a needle. What is going on? What is Jesus talking about comparing a rich man getting into the kingdom of heaven with a camel going through the eye of a needle? As a child, I heard a great story to explain what Jesus was talking about. Some of you may have heard this story before. I heard that Jesus was, was actually, he was referring to something else. He wasn't referring to a big animal going through the eye of a needle. No, no, no. He was referring to a place in Jerusalem known as the Needle Gate. Have you, any of you heard this story before? And if you were entering into the city of Jerusalem, there were several gates that you could go through. But there was this one gate known as the Needle Gate, and this gate was a smaller gate. And apparently at, at the, the end of the day, as dusk fell, they would, they would close up these city gates to make sure there's safety inside the city. But this needle gate would remain open. And so if travelers were making their way into the city, they would lead their camel and all their other possessions and their, their group of people to this needle gate. But the needle gate was so small that the camel couldn't fit through it. Travelers would have to take off the luggage off off this camel, remove everything off the camel. Then the camel would have to stoop his head down and actually get down on his knees and crawl through the needle gate. And so the the obvious application for us would be, well, if you want to get through, if you want to get through this passage, then what you need to do is you you got to get rid of your stuff. You take off you take off all the luggage. You humble yourself down on your knees and then you crawl through and you can make your way into the kingdom 
of heaven. Now, before we get too excited about this analogy and about this application, there's a few things that are needed to be understood about this story. It's completely unfounded. That should be one indication for us. There's no evidence of the Needlegate ever existing. The story kind of popped up in the 15th century, but it can't be dated any earlier than the 9th century from what uh, historians know. And there's no record of some architect who just thought, you know what, I'm going to make a really small gate just to kind of be a nuisance to camels because I've got a vendetta on them. There's no archaeological evidence for this at all. And when we think about what the implications of this message are, it really does not mesh with what we see in the rest of this passage or really in what Jesus is saying any other time in the Gospels. Because if this story was true, and if this is Jesus what we're talking about, he's basically saying, what you need to do to get there is you just, you kind of get rid of some of your stuff, and, and you humble yourself, and then you just try harder. Just, just make more of an effort, and you can find a way to get through the eye of that needle yourself. It's going to be really hard, but you can do it. So we're left without a cute story about how to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And we're stuck again with the words of Jesus. So what are we to make of it? The best way to understand the riddle that Jesus gives is to take his ridiculous comparison at face value. How can a camel get through the eye of a needle? It can't. It's not only improbable, it's completely impossible. Which is exactly Jesus' point. When the disciples hear the comparison that Jesus makes, they aren't confused, as many of us are when we look at this passage and think, what is he talking about? When the disciples hear this comparison, they're amazed. They're astounded. And we see what they say here in verse 25, which makes me think they understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. In verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and they asked, who then can be saved? They aren't wondering about what Jesus is talking about. They totally understand that a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. And so if the rich man, this rich person that they think, this is someone who's favored by God, if he can't get through the eye of the needle, then who can? If he can't be saved, who can be saved? And then Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The story of the rich man reminds us that no one enters God's kingdom based on anything other than the grace of God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor, or if you're good or if you're evil. It's only done through the grace of God. We can't do anything to earn it. You and I have the same chance of gaining eternal life as we do of shoving an adult camel through an eye of a needle. It's an impossibility for us, but for the one who chooses to depend on God, For the one who chooses to receive the grace of God, the impossible becomes possible. So the story begins with a man's question about how to get eternal life and ends with Jesus saying it's impossible for him to get there on his own. And the reason why it's impossible is because for this man, he was possessed by his possessions. This man was possessed by his possessions. Now, there's many reasons why Jesus may have asked the man to sell off all that he had. But his request seems to be motivated by one factor. He was concerned for the condition of this man's heart. There's no doubt that Jesus cared deeply for the poor. 
There's many stories of Jesus talking about the poor and the oppressed and the forgotten. And actually, next week, we're looking at that topic specifically. But this story is not about Jesus' heart for the poor. He tells the man to sell off his possessions and give it to the poor. But he is not advocating here for our actions for the poor. This story is indication of his heart for the rich. The man's wealth had become his greatest liability. He was possessed by his possessions. And you and I are just as likely to fall into the same trap as he did. Possessions have a way of possessing us. What should we do? Should we sell off everything we have and give it to the poor? I think we could do worse. The worst thing we could do is to do nothing. That would be the worst application we could make. But that's what we're tempted to do. Because one of the chief gods of our society is materialism. Just get more stuff. Just get more stuff. And the amount that we have and the, and the new things that we have and the accumulation of stuff and wealth somehow makes us feel better about ourselves. Somehow makes us feel complete. It's one of the biggest lies of our age. But I find that I believe it over and over and over again. And the only way to break the power that possessions have on our life is to give stuff away. It's the same thing for the only way that we can begin to become generous. It starts by being generous. So this is my challenge to you today. Give something away. Give something away. Ask God if there are possessions in your life that are possessing you. That you're placing your hope in, your trust, your devotion to. And then ask God, Lord, is there anything that I need to give away? Is there something that I need to give away? Because this has become an obstruction towards living out the life that you have called me to. You can give something away for free. You can sell something off and give it somewhere else, like Jesus told the man to sell it off and give it to the poor. Sell something off and then give the money to the Gateway of Hope. It's an organization here in Langley that help the poor, help those without homes, help those rehabilitate. Sell something off and give it to World Vision. They do great work throughout the world, helping people withstand poverty and helping children who have gone through tough times. Sell something off and give it through Kiva, an organization that, that lends money out to help people start businesses. It's helping the poor. Better yet, sell something off and then find someone in the community and give them the money yourself. Let them know that you're acting in obedience to what God has placed on your heart. Now, some of you might think that these ideas are ridiculous. You might think that this is absolute insanity. And according to the kingdom of this world, it is. It's preposterous. But according to the kingdom of God, It's as natural as the first becoming last and the last becoming first. Because the kingdom of God is the upside-down kingdom. It's the complete reversal of how we understand our life. So give something away. Don't let your possessions possess you, as they did to the young man in this story. Some of you are here this morning, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And that's fine. I'm glad you're here with us. And so you think, well, this application has no meaning to me. Because I don't believe that that Jesus saved my soul at all, so I can't do anything with this. 
You might simply think that Jesus was an interesting moral teacher and that he had some good things to say. And you know what? You can still believe that and take him at his word in this story to give something away. Try it out and see if if Jesus will move in your life as you are obedient to what he says in this story. Give your possessions away. Not because this will earn you something. Not because then you have done something in order to earn eternal life. But because this is part of what kingdom of God living is like. It's about taking what God has entrusted to us and distributing it where there is need. It's, it's no surprise, it's really a, no, not shocking at all that in the early church, this is what the people did. As the Holy Spirit moved and prompted people, people willingly went and they sold off property and then they took the money and they dropped it at the feet of the apostles to be used according to how God directed them. This is kingdom living. Not grasping and holding and hoarding on to our possessions and, and letting that become poison in our hearts, but understanding that all that we have has been given to us from God for a reason, to be used for his purposes. A lot of people think they can't afford to give things away. And that's because most people leave giving things away as their last priority. They leave giving for last. If you give first, you'll find that there's other things that you can't afford because you leave that for last. If you give first, you'll find out that then you don't have money left over to buy more clothes or to make a car payment or to buy some lotto tickets. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a great thing. It might change how you spend your money. It might change how you think about your stuff. And it might start to change the condition of your soul too. You might even get a taste of what living for the kingdom of God is like. So give something away first and then see what it will do to your heart. Don't give with the thought that you'll be getting something from God. Give because God has already given you everything by his grace. Give to remind yourself that it's not the rich who are favored by God and it's not the poor who are favored by God, but it's the forgiven who are given everything by God. The way of God. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the stories that you have given to us about what your son Jesus did while he walked on this earth. Thankful that he responded to questions that we still have today about how to obtain eternal life. And Lord, we are thankful for the fact that his words of truth are just as relevant to us today as they were thousands of years ago. Lord, I pray that we would not be deceived by the kingdom of this earth. That we would not be identified by or hold trust to or be loyal to our possessions or our riches or the things that we think we have accomplished ourselves. But instead, Lord, we would look toward building treasure in heaven. And so, God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning by giving us instruction about what we need to do. If there's something that you want us to give away, Lord, please, Create a conviction in our heart to do that. Please move in a way that we will understand and that we will not miss. And provide us with the courage we need to be obedient, Lord, so that we may see the kingdom of heaven advanced and so that we may celebrate with the rest of your family as we are part of it. Amen.